0: I'm Mary, can you can you hear me?
1: Dan, Dan, I can see you. I can't hear you, Dan.
0: I can hear you. I c- I can't see you.
1: Dan, Dan, are you on mute?
0: Yeah, you're frozen. Ah. Oh. You, you, can you come come off mute? Are you- <laughs> <laughs> okay, just kidding around, but probably a relatable scenario to a lot of our listeners, I imagine this week.
1: I lost it, Dan. You've actually frozen now. <laughs> He's
2: frozen. He's actually frozen. Oh, God.
1: (laughs) Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers, and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: Okay. So on this week's episode of Investment Uncut, we have a special show called The Book Club. And What we're doing this week is we are reviewing and discussing that classic finance book, The Big Short, written by Michael Lewis after the 2008 crisis. And joining us today to help with that discussion is Nisha Gogna. Nisha, hi. Hi. And our listeners won't know this, but Nisha has done a huge amount of work behind the scenes in project managing this podcast. Nisha, thank you very much for all that.
2: It's okay. No worries,
1: then. Thanks very much, Nisha. Nisha, can you just tell us a bit more about your role at LCP?
2: Yeah, sure. So I am a PR and digital marketing assistant at LCP. So I basically look after the website as well as do the public relations of the company. And also, I'm in charge of the social media as well. And also, of course, the podcasting that you guys are doing. <laughs> <laughs> Juggling a lot of tasks in. Yeah.
0: Cool. <laughs> sure, awesome. And why don't you go ahead and tell us one thing about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile or on your CV?
2: Yeah, sure. So I recently started to get into spoken word open mic. So I do like, open mics at spoken word nights and I've always liked writing. So I write about personal development, philosophy, democracy, personal growth, psychology, stuff like that. Life, basically. <laughs> and yeah, I just started doing spoken word poetry. Unfortunately, during quarantining and coronavirus, I was supposed to perform at the Criterion Theatre. But of course, that didn't end up happening. So. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> oh no. that's such a shame. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it would have been so good. But we, we did like a virtual show. So it was nice that we were able to submit our pieces and showcase it on social media and whatnot.
1: Fantastic. So you're quite used to speaking virtually over a mic then.
2: Yeah. Both well yeah. For
0: today. <laughs> <laughs> and so where can people find your stuff if they want to read some of the stuff you've written? Do you have a website? Or yeah, you-
2: I've got a website. It's uk. Nice. Cool.
0: Yeah. Put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, then we'll turn into the discussion of the book, the big short that we've all been reading over the last couple of weeks, we thought we'd start off by reflecting the first question, reflecting on what really stands out looking back now 12, 13 years on reading that book. What stands out? So Nisha, what sort of stands out for you?
2: Yeah, sure. So of course, for a person who's only heard about the financial crisis in 07 and 08, I think the one thing that stood out to me was that the book is not just about overextended borrowers and risky bets going bad but it's more about the concept of morality and the fact that no one was paying attention to what was happening the banks were too busy making obscene fees to sell the bonds and they weren't confessing they were more bragging so it was just that concept of how fraud and policies and deception all interlink together and the concept of morality really for me
1: I think the morality point is really interesting, isn't it? And it's true when you sort of read the book or you watch the film adaptation, the greed that you see portrayed by Banks, I'm not necessarily sure in many cases it was deception, but certainly greed potentially getting in the way of that sort of decision-making. And I guess what really struck me is the kind of, if something seems too good to be true, then it probably is. And we all say that, but do we really think that through when we're presented with an opportunity to make money? If you're a bank that's trying to make money, which I think is a really interesting point.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the morality point, that's been debated quite a lot over the last decade, hasn't it? I mean, back to that sort of social question of why do banks and why does the whole finance industry sort of exist? What's the social purpose it serves? And I guess the answer to that should be channeling capital, channeling money and savings towards productive enterprises. And I suppose you can definitely argue that before the 2008 crisis, things had gone quite a long way away from that in terms of sort of what was happening. So I think, I think there has been a little bit of a reframing of that over the last decade. I don't know, do you think we're in a better place now than a significantly better place now than where we were then? Or it's hard to say, isn't it? I think
2: it's really hard to say. You're right, Mira, I think it's probably hard to say, but we are probably in a, a slightly better position, I think, in terms of there probably are elements of conformity of course and there's still probably fraud happening but on a lighter scale than what it was before but I think what's evident from the crisis was that they needed people to question it the system and there wasn't anyone to question it you had to be an oddball character like Michael Burry to question the system and that's quite interesting
0: Absolutely, isn't it? And that's, I think, the big thing that stands out to me when you start reading that book. He obviously spends a while painting the pictures of these characters, but they're all such outsiders, such oddballs, such sort of strange characters. And yeah, to your point, Nisha, you have to be like that, I suppose, to ask such fundamental questions of the system, right? I think that's a big point that he's trying to make, isn't it, through the book?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it comes back to the idea of groupthink, which will be probably next week's episode, the idea that this was a market-wide issue, and yet it was only the sort of outcasts that were willing or able even to take that different view. Perhaps their personalities meant that they were more easily able to take those differing views, but the risk of groupthink and no one questioning the norm is certainly a risk that I think still exists today.
0: Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah, I, I really do have a bee in my bonnet about conformity generally. I think it definitely remains a huge problem, but it's just, as a lot of people have said, it's because we are we are socially wired to conform with people around us. I think you can definitely make an argument that the hierarchical structure of a corporation sort of encourages conformity because you get this career risk that sort of manifests itself and, and people don't sort of speak out against things. So that's a really tricky one that I'm not sure that's got that much better.
2: Yeah. I definitely agree, Dan. I think just on the point of conformity and personality, I think obviously Barry was working through volatile times and it was so hard for him to be contrarian. And I always have like my psychological cap all throughout the movie. I did a degree in psychology, so I always link back to personality. And I think that's such a big point. I think Barry's personality, he was quite introverted, quite intuitive. He's very thoughtful. So unlike the Myers-Briggs type indicator, he could probably be like an INTJ maybe. He's very highly analytical and he wants to work alone. But I just find it really funny that his investors had to fly in to tell him that they had no confidence in what he was doing. And originally he was supposed to be a stock picker. And what was he doing?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the point you make there around the contrarian is exactly right. I mean, everyone sort of wants to be a contrarian and thinks they can be a contrarian. In that situation, it was just so hard to actually be that. I was reading about this fascinating psychology experiment that took place, I think, in the 1960s. I think it's quite famous. So they had a load of volunteers, the the experiment subjects, and they were sat in a waiting room. They just thought they were waiting, but it was the actual experiment. The room starts slowly filling with smoke. And there are also some actors in the room who are in on on the experiment. And the actors sit there and do nothing. And of course, what do the experimental subjects do? They also sit there and do nothing. And it sort of proves that in a very ambiguous situation like that, we look at other people first and react based on how they're reacting. I think that was such a great parallel for that period of time. Speaking for me, I do remember part of that when I was working. And I think it was kind of, a, there were elements of that where people knew there was maybe something a little bit wrong, some problems here or there, but the smoke was filling the room, but everyone was looking at each other and everyone was pretending it was fine. So everyone thought it was fine sort of thing. I, I think that's, you know, that remains a real risk.
2: I think what's evident there is the fact that if you're in a lab coat or if you've got your investor's senior's position, you're not going to question them, are you? Because they're a figure of authority.
0: Exactly. It comes back to corporate hierarchy and all of those guys who were questioning it weren't really in a corporate hierarchy, I guess, which I think freed them all up to be a little bit more contrarian about it.
1: Yeah. I think the other thing that sort of struck me, and I think this comes out a bit more strongly in the film, and perhaps it's just um, film poetic license almost, how it sort of looks like practically no one saw this coming and I've sort of seen some criticisms on various reviews of this to sort of say well lots of people saw that something might be coming but people hadn't necessarily made all of the connections between the housing market and and the sort of financial markets and and perhaps though they might have perceived there to be a, a US housing bubble they hadn't quite realized just how far reaching that would become which I guess is another interesting concept that you know we might say I can look at the financial markets and I can see that we've got a potential risk in one area or another but actually if something left field comes in and just captures everything and impacts all markets did we see that coming and had we really understood the intricate connections between different markets that do exist
0: yeah that's right and i guess my take on reading the book a little bit i sort of feel that sometimes the book makes out that it was easy to spot that it was coming if you see what i mean that that's part of what they're saying which, which i always think is a little bit unfair maybe you're right it's more saying that you really had to drill into the connections between these different markets to get how significant this whole thing had become and quite how much worse it was than what people were saying. I mean, you could easily, I suppose, be fobbed off by someone who says, well, yeah, there's going to be some defaults, but look, that's going to be restricted to the lower quality mortgages and all this higher level stuff is fine because the rating agency said so. Probably something that would have fobbed a lot of people off, but I guess it was having to drill down sort of beyond that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Another thing that stuck out to me on the reread, a little bit back to Michael Burry and where he was, was just the period of time over which this the whole thing took place. And the fact that, for Michael Burry anyway, there's not that much of a difference between being early and being wrong. He was effectively early, aka wrong, for two years, which is all very well when Michael Lewis compresses it into a sort of 150 pages or you see it in an hour or something on a movie. But two years... Of putting up with his investors, getting losing money, getting angry, having to justify it is incredibly difficult period of time, isn't it, I imagine?
1: Yeah. And I guess the sort of maybe the high level message there is to do with sort of holding your nerve and sticking to your policy through times of market volatility. Now, clearly, two years is an extremely long period of time. And probably his personality type is what helped him to hold his nerve for that extended period of time. But for others living through market volatility and crises, it's the holding your nerve thing that sort of I took away from that.
0: Yeah, I think so. Just to maybe criticize Burry for a second, I know this might be a bit controversial. Is there also an argument around sort of right-sizing your risks and your positions and that he was maybe a little bit all in on one particular trade effectively, which as a fund manager of a fund is sort of a bit of a no-no, obviously. You should be sort of always diversified in your bets such that if any one of them doesn't pay off, it's not going to sort of drag you down. On rereading it, I thought you could maybe criticise him for being a bit too overexposed to that one thing. But obviously, he had very high conviction in it.
1: And you can see exactly why his investors were so nervous. In particular, as Nisha said, he started off really being a stock picker. So I think there is a bit of a, you know, if you're investing in a product, you want to know what that product is supposed to be doing. And if it stops doing the thing it's supposed to be doing, that is an alarm bell.
0: Well, exa- exactly that is. And that's um, obviously we refer to that as style drift, wouldn't we? So that's something that obviously we look at as a firm when we, when we look at managers and would be a big red flag and a big no-no for us when we're looking at our, the managers our clients have. So yeah, I, I was a bit torn on that point that maybe he did get a little bit sort of over his skis, as people say. And the other takeaway there is the role of communication to your investors is quite important in those sort of times. And obviously, he wasn't the best at that, was he?
1: No, no. Very good at reading markets, perhaps less good at reading people.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think you raised an interesting point Dan, about the whole criticism thing. I think my key takeaway criticism would be, as much as I really enjoy the character of Michael Burry, it's just impossible for me to shake off the fact that these guys became wealthy betting against the fortunes of millions of ordinary Americans and many of those who have just lost their jobs and homes to the crisis. And the book almost celebrates, I think, Ben Rickard. Is that Brad Pitt in the movie, I think? <laughs> yeah. You know how he bet on the, the American economy. So the idea is, yeah, you win the bet and you're rich. But at what cost? It wasn't just a financial crisis. It was a, almost like a humanitarian crisis.
0: That's true. I think it was. And I thought the movie handled that reasonably well, actually, in the way that they were very clear not to sort of over-celebrate it. And I think the book, because the book ends, doesn't it, with that scene when the guys from Front Point are sat on the steps and, and looking out. So I, I don't know, I felt it did a decent job of trying to recognize this wasn't a triumphal ending. And, and none of the characters, they weren't running around drinking champagne sort of thing, where they all had their sort of difficult moments.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's back a bit to the point we discussed in our first ever episode, Dan, with Matt Gibson on the idea of shorting, taking a negative position against something. In this case, it's the housing market. And in the case with Matt, we were talking, I think, about shorting stocks and whether that is a sort of vulture move or whether that is a a move that, encourages a more efficiently running market. So it is an interesting one. And and one, I think that you have to tread the line very carefully. And you're completely right, Nisha, that the humanitarian aspect of it perhaps hadn't been fully thought through when some of these early positions were taken.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, actually, Mary, isn't it? Because obviously, that's not a reason not to short things. Because if no one does that, then the bubbles get even more out of control sort of thing. So yeah, there is an argument to be made that the people who bet against things are actually doing a social good by keeping things in check and stopping things from getting too out of line that was matt's point wasn't it yeah
1: yeah yeah that's right
0: one other point i wanted to make and things that stand out maybe it's the elephant in the room a little bit but the question of diversity i mean certainly when you watch the movie i think that really stands out i mean i don't think there's really one significant female role
1: the only female in the movie is the lady from was it fitch
0: Oh, there's, yeah, this lady Justifying
1: from why she was continuing to give good credit ratings to bad bonds. Yes. Yeah. so yeah, really good vote there for the women. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and there was the risk manager at Morgan Stanley. Yeah, oh, yeah. And also, the wife of Steve Eisman character was also sort of a character as well. But I mean, it was very minor roles, really, wasn't it? It was all. It was all men, especially at the conferences, they just sort of looked. And that's probably something that when I watched that movie, whenever it was 10 years ago, probably wouldn't have stood out as much as it does today when you see, is that being really honest?
1: Yeah. And I suppose it is just a portrayal of that point in time, isn't it? That is what the industry looked like certainly back in oh seven oh eight, and Perhaps it looks differently now. I'm not sure it looks as different as some of us would hope. but
0: Yeah, I'm not sure it's that different. But yeah, I guess you're right. It's accurate to how things were. It's probably relevant to some of the groupthink points, isn't it? I mean, I think there's been a lot of work, obviously, that said that more diverse boards, more diverse groups can stand a better chance of getting away from that, those groupthink issues.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I suppose the other two women we got in the film were Margot Robbie and Selena Gomez <laughs> with, with slightly different roles. <laughs> I guess we'll come on to talk about characters a bit later on.
0: They added good value, though, didn't they? They explained some quite tricky issues in some quite creative ways, actually, didn't they? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think especially for me that for like a non-investment professional like me, I think that really helped me in terms of understanding the financial jargon. But I just found it really interesting that it was juxtaposed. You've got Margaret Robbie in a bathtub explaining different financial jargons and it's just very distracting in a way. But it's also like trying to make you think that this is what Wall Street intended. You know, they wanted, you to have the feeling that only they knew what they could do in that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think we talked, again, we talked before in one of our other episodes about jargon. We talked to Stuart McKinnon back in episode four. But yeah, I mean, they make the point in the film, don't they, that some jargon is almost there to try and confuse you, to try and make you think that you're less smart than the person talking to you, to try and sort of obfuscate and hide things. And I think that's kind of true, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I suppose if thinking about sort of similarities and differences to today versus then, jargon, certainly something that has not gone away at all. And we talked about it at length with Stuart. We sort of touch on it in every episode, I think, that there's still so much jargon. And also complexity. Just because something's complex, does it mean it's more clever and more right? Probably not. But it sort of disguises what's under the surface a bit, I think.
0: No, but that's right, and they are slightly different things, actually, aren't they? Complexity versus jargon. Although they are sort of, they are sort of connected. But do you think that perhaps the film actually points us towards some interesting ways that we might look to explain things a little bit better and in more entertaining ways, perhaps? I
1: think yeah. so, yeah. I yeah. sort of found it slightly inspirational in terms of, you know, if I'm trying to explain something complex to some of my clients, actually, why stick within the investment world to come up with analogies? The Selena Gomez analogy I thought was absolutely fantastic and really, really clearly sets out the concepts that it's covering. So yeah, we could take a, a leaf from their book.
2: I think the most useful scene for me was the Ryan Gosling and the Jenga scene. He just did it in such a an interesting manner, playing Jenga and just explaining the tranches and the mortgage-backed securities and whatnot. And because it was such a, a virtual interactive way, he just explained it really well and it, I could understand it.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think that was a great scene, wasn't it? And let's be honest, we're, as a firm, we're probably as guilty as anyone of sending out long slide presentations to explain things. Maybe one of the lessons from that film is that, I don't know, Ryan Gosling with Jenga or Margaret Robbie in a bath is sort of equally as good potentially ways of trying to get some of these points across, right? Yeah, yeah, Definitely. <laughs> definitely.
1: And it avoids also accidentally using jargon to explain other jargon, because I think quite often we're (laughs) we're at risk of doing that. We use some investment jargon to explain the investment jargon, actually take ourselves to a different scene and we can't do that. So,
0: yeah, jargon on jargon. Yeah. Okay. Well, perhaps we should move the conversation on a little bit. And you've already mentioned it briefly, Mary. But what do we think are some of the similarities and some of the differences to sort of where we are now, obviously, today, living through a little bit of an economic crisis, as well as, of course, a, a public health crisis? What do you think is similar? What do you think is different?
1: So I think, in terms of this crisis, Nisha already touched on it, and it's the humanitarian aspect of the crisis. I think that perhaps it's more obvious at an earlier stage with this crisis, given the nature of it. But the fact that, you know, it's not just financial markets that we're trying to prop up here. It's real people with real lives. And whether it's that they've contracted the virus or whether it's that their job is affected, that's two different ways that they could be affected. But actually sort of caring for society feels this time around to be viewed as extremely important. And I guess probably more so this time than last time. But in both cases, I think the impact on real people on the street, I think, is key.
0: Yeah, I suppose one of the more obvious differences, perhaps, is that this time around, there's an economic event happening. And if anything, the banks are in a better position to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. You know, in 2008, it was very much a banking issue which then sort of led into the wider economic issue whereas this time around I think firstly the banks are in slightly better shape going into it I guess some of the regulation has maybe worked in terms of making sure the banks are less levered taking less risk going into it hopefully in a reasonable position to be part of the solution in terms of central banks using the sort of commercial banks to give out loans to businesses and, and those sort of things as hopefully part of the stimulus to come out of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the lessons learnt from last time round are really showing through now. So the types of stimulus that are being used because we've sort of learnt what stimulus is available and how we use it and that sort of thing, it's sort of kicked in a much quicker this time round.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's definitely one of the similarities I would say. If you look at some of the central bank actions, it's clear that people have said that they're sort of using the playbook from two thousand and eight-nine, but putting them into action in a much, much more compressed time frame because that sort of just playbook exists now and they're able to to do that.
1: Although with less I guess dry powder in a sense you can lower interest rates only so far and they're already so low that perhaps there's less far that they can go but taking those measures more quickly is certainly helpful.
0: Yeah absolutely.
2: Definitely. I get the feeling that in 08 oh we probably had far too much trust in the rating agencies and it must be now I assume I don't know much about it but I assume that the market now would be a lot more stricter you'd hope <laughs> with how you rate stuff.
1: Yeah, you're right. They certainly came under a lot of criticism, didn't they, after the 08 crisis? And I think there's, there's a lot less reliance. There's a bit more sort of almost suspicions maybe too strong. But where we look at managers that are holding bonds, they're rated by rating agencies. A lot of the investment managers we speak to also do their own due diligence. So they're not just relying on that one source. And perhaps they look at three different sources of credit ratings rather than just one. So certainly the system feels a bit more robust in that sense. But nevertheless, you've got an investment manager that's looked at lots of companies and they've worked out if they think they're credit worthy or not. And now we're in a situation where companies are really struggling to meet fixed payments. I guess there's a question over how much protection do you get for having done that due diligence when, I guess, we all knew there was a risk of a pandemic, but had we all thought about exactly how it would play out, I suppose.
0: And that point about the rating agencies is a really good one, actually, because it's clearly one of the takeaways from the book and the film, isn't it? That people put too much faith in these ratings that were being given. And actually, when you dug beneath the surface, there wasn't really enough going on. And I think I think Mary's right, the system is now a little bit better. But there's such a behavioral sort of tendency to want to bucket things into groups and neat classifications, right? That I think ratings are still so important, sort of for that reason. You know, I mean, I found myself just the other day looking at a a long slide presentation from a manager talking about a bond fund, it's very hard to resist flipping to the page that shows the breakdown by rating. Having a quick look at that and thinking, oh yeah, I've got my head around this fund now, because I I know that average is this and this is a distribution. And that's good. It's useful to a point. But it does show this massive human need to bucket things and summarize things and just chunk it up. And if you're not careful, that can be sort of exploited or can take you into bad places, I guess, is the lesson from the big shot.
1: Yeah. And I guess the risk with bucketing is you oversimplify the situation.
0: Yeah.
2: You
1: say all AAA rated bonds are absolutely fine and all single B rated bonds are dangerous. And actually, the way that this pandemic is hitting us today's market, different industries are affected so differently that actually credit rating alone isn't going to give you the full picture of whether the company will be struggling or not.
0: So one of the other similarities, I think, today to back then was this question of bailouts, actually. So obviously, today, there's a lot of debate over outs of things like the airline industry and the reason obviously there's a debate is because there's this question of well to what extent should you be bailing out corporations versus individuals what if the company has behaved a little bit a slightly risky way perhaps and and what merits one company over another it's all pretty tricky and and it was kind of similar questions I think back then although slightly different industries I guess it was the auto industry and obviously the banking industry that was sort of debated heavily then but I kind of feel we've got some of a lot of the same questions coming back now
1: yeah Yeah, which company? I've given company A and company B. Which one do I bail out? Kind of, how do we come up with an objective way of deciding that? I guess that's similar to the challenge that they would have
0: had back then. Yeah, and when you where do you draw the line over saying, well, no, that company paid out excessive dividends or did too many buybacks, so you know we don't think that should be a good use of money. It is pretty tricky when you get out of that level.
1: Yeah, I guess one of the things that's probably different this time maybe feeds into the speed of decision making is the speed of the sort of spiral itself. So you mentioned. We've touched on before that it was two years that Michael Burry was wrong I and mean, he was seeing the signs and it took a long time for the market to sort of, I guess, well, eventually collapse. Whereas this time around, the impact has been significant and very, very rapid, probably because of the nature of the problem. But I guess, yeah, I mean, Dan, from working through that time, I guess that was your experience, right, that it, it took quite a long time to come through.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's a really good point. And I suppose there were so many little moments where it felt like the worst was behind us, I think, from my memory anyway, because was in the movie, it talks about the summer 07 where the Bear Stearns funds got into trouble. There was a sort of a bit of a feeling, I think, after that, that, okay, that was a bit of a crunch, but things are okay now. And then even early 08, there was a bit of a fall in markets and everyone thought, okay, fine, you know, there were some issues, but now we're through it. And it did take place over even the actual crisis itself, I suppose, from I suppose, June of '07, when you can say things started to go bad, to March of '09, when the market finally bottomed. It's obviously a long period of time. Interesting story for me. I mean, I spent the first part of the crisis. I was working in investment consulting for Mercer in London. End of 2007, I moved to Sydney and started working in asset management so it was enough of a span of time that I sort of relocated my whole life and career and done this huge huge kind of change over that period of time and the time there was just completely different both on the way on the way out and the way down
1: yeah oh and I guess being based in Australia you sort of saw the asian markets reacting so it's sort of a different sides of the world as well in terms of the reaction
0: Yeah, well, that was it. So I was working in sort of asset management there. So sort of one step closer to the markets than what I was before. And yeah, I think Lehman Brothers sort of went bust over a weekend, basically. So there were several times there where the Asian markets were the first ones to feel the full effects of some of the issues. So certainly some pretty extreme moves and pretty interesting times. When Michael Lewis writes up the investigative report of 2020, of this particular crisis, of this pandemic, what do we think are going to be some of the stories that he's talking about there?
1: I mean, I think the point that we've touched on already, the speed that this crisis so far has progressed with, I think is notable. Clearly, we're not at the end of it yet. So it's difficult to predict exactly what comments he will make in relation to speed. But I think that is something that sort of stands out this time around. And the humanitarian aspect. I mean, I suppose we've just had a sunny weekend and we've seen reports of people all across the UK not quite following government guidance. And I think the, this time around, the part that individuals have to play in the progression, I think is is quite different to previous. We're not used to being bossed around. We're not used to being told what we can and can't do. And clearly, some of us are struggling with that concept. So I think that's something, and again, it's difficult to say exactly how it's going to play out. But I do think the more that we follow the guidelines, probably the more contained this thing is. This whole issue is from a humanitarian perspective, but inevitably also from a market perspective. So if you think about a company that's trying to Sort of survive through lockdown. Perhaps it's in the retail space, and it has enough cash to survive a two-month lockdown, but not a an eight-month lockdown. Then actually, the impact on companies and therefore the impact on the sort of the market environment, I think, could be very much influenced by the individual people's
2: behaviour. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I guess I was thinking, you know, obviously in, in The Big Short, a big part of the story is unearthing these people, this small number of people who sort of saw it coming. And obviously, what we are today, it's tempting to sort of say, "Oh, that just came out of." The clear blue sky sort of thing and no one could have seen it coming but when you think about it that's i guess actually not quite true i mean you could go back to the bill gates ted talk from 2015 five years ago where he was talking about the need to prepare for the next pandemic i think that will definitely feature in the write-up of 2020 as well as the world economic forum and others frequently feature pandemics and the kind of risk reports and i suppose the question of what was done with that where did that really go and did that really affect how we how we sort of prepared
2: Yeah. It's a good point, Dan. I think you write the big shot of this. It's the moral of the story is listen to the warnings, isn't it? Focus on the risks that we know about and focus on what could happen. But instead, nobody really did that. And then this is what happened.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And we talk about the timing of this one and we say how quickly it's happened and it has happened quickly, but let's not forget it is called COVID-19, right? So it has been around since December last year. January this year, I think it was known that it was quite bad, February. And there were people who were out there in certainly in early February, late February saying making predictions about how bad things were going to be so although the timeline is definitely compressed versus a sort of multi-year time frame I still think that we'll focus a little bit on some of those people who were saying things in in early February which have now sort of turned out to be true but perhaps weren't listened to or it wasn't actioned in the way it could have been
1: yeah and I think it is back to the known unknowns and Nisha you just touched on it I think that we spend so much time trying to work out you've got the known unknowns and you've got the unknown unknowns and you spend so much time sort of trying to stargaze and work out what next thing might hit us but actually there are things we know about like as you said Dan pandemic has been on many risk registers for a long time I suspect and actually have we fully thought through the risks that we're identifying on those because having pre-made decisions and it comes back a bit to our session with Nikki Dan where we talked about behavioral finance, behavior of investors, and sort of if you make decisions in advance, then you're more able to make solid and rational decisions through market difficulty and indeed personal difficulty, actually fully thinking through some of those risks that we do already know about and what actions we take, perhaps make us better able to deal with the fallout when it happens.
2: Definitely. Yeah.
0: It's a good point. And also just come back a little bit to how you use scenario and stress tests, right? So you think about it from a business point of view, then as, lot, as many people have said, you know, no businesses or very few businesses would have taken a stress test where they assume the revenue goes to zero for, for a prolonged period of time. Just because until, until this happened, it was really hard to understand how that could ever possibly happen, that your revenue could actually go to zero. And actually, it's not that helpful because you'd say, well, what do you do as a business if you're trying to protect against that? Well, I guess you just hold on a huge amount of cash. And in almost all scenarios, you're going to look like you're running your business inefficiently because you've got too much cash on hand and you're not investing enough. And so it's kind of, even though, you know, it's a risk, it's not always obvious how you can adjust for that in in the way you work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which reminds me a bit actually of the session last week with Alison, where we talked about being resilient to different conditions. But in many cases, as you said, Dan, resilience might translate to inefficient in most scenarios. Then it's, I guess, where you draw the line.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, fine then. So let's move on to talking about our favorite characters. So Nisha, what have you got on that one?
2: Yeah, I have to admit my all-time favourite was Michael Burry, Christian Bale in the movie. I just really enjoyed his eccentric work style and how he was a visionary and he was very socially awkward as well. I find it quite interesting, actually, that the way he communicated to his investors, of course, nowadays that's very vital. And even then it was very important. But because of his awkward persona, he just found it very difficult communicating them face to face. So he'd talk in email and he'd always avoid talking. And why would he do that? Why?
0: Yeah, he certainly needed a much better PR team, I think, Nisha.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he did mention about like discussing ideas with investors. And I don't know, I think how he thought about that as well. Wasn't there something in the book, Dan, about defender of the idea or something?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I've marked that up. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting when he made that point in that, I think what he said was that one of the reasons he didn't like to talk to investors was because when you do start talking to investors, you start defending your ideas to them. And as soon as you start defending your idea, it then it becomes very hard to step away from it in the future. And I think that's actually a, it's a really insightful sort of psychological point And it's one that it's quite hard to appreciate because it's sort of it's an e- related to ego, isn't it? It's always really hard for us to appreciate those sort of things. About ourselves. So I think he was really onto something there. I think that's always true. And you see a little bit of that today, I suppose, you know, whatever the stance people have taken on what they think about how policy should evolve in in dealing with the current crisis, there is a bit of a, once you've dug your heels in behind a certain position, it tends to be very, very hard to sort of shift people. So I think Burry was definitely onto something there, but I would say his big mistake was not figuring out how he could have some kind of a air pocket around him or some kind of team that could deal with the investors and, and allow him to stay in that kind of um, slightly more insulated position. Really interesting insight, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And we certainly see that when I look at the investment managers that we work with. Some of them take a really hard stance that we don't have portfolio managers that we will just roll out to every client because that's distracting for them. And it sometimes takes them off their sort of message and they're supposed to be looking at your investments every day, all day. So actually, I think that's quite interesting. A lot of clients, intuitively, what you want to do is you want to meet the person making decisions about your investments. Actually, what they should be doing is making those decisions rather than speaking to you. But there is, I guess, a it's a bit of a gray area there on having a bit of contact and having a bit of insight from the person actually investing, but that level of support for the investors themselves as well.
0: Yeah. Go on then, Mary. Favorite characters? What do you reckon?
1: <laughs> so I do also like Michael Burry, but I actually really liked so Ben Hockett, I think was his actual name, but he's Ben Rickett in the film Brad Pitt's character. Partly because it really made me think. So he'd left the industry because he didn't believe in it anymore. So he had this kind of apocalyptic view. And rather than try and somehow fix the industry or speak up about it being broken, he just left. And that made me really think in terms of the sort of almost moral, the moral aspect of it, again, as Nisha sort of started this session with, do we all therefore have responsibility for the market to be a well-run market? Was he going against that responsibility by stepping out of the market? And obviously, he comes back in to help his neighbor to trade. But, But it just really made me think about kind of, we're all players in this market, what responsibility is attached to that? So yeah.
0: Yeah, it goes back to the whole question of morality and social purpose and kind of what purpose is, is, is the industry actually serving.
1: Yeah, that and I've got a soft spot for Brad Pitt, so <laughs> who knows which one of
0: those. It must be one of those few movies where he didn't take his shirt off and walk around without his shirt on. Right?
1: True, true. <laughs> How about you, Dan? Well, he was your favourite?
0: I didn't like Michael Barry as much as you guys, I think. I mean, I struggled to maybe get over the fact that I felt he was a bit too sort of undiversified in that bet and a bit too unwilling to sort of moderate some of his extreme views but the character he doesn't come across so well in the book but the character i really like from the movie is the ryan gosling character i think he's called Jarrett venet in the movie but it's greg lipman i think is the character it's based on from the um the real life one not because he's a nice person he's obviously a bit of a douche but i think he's just, <laughs> he just got some brilliant lines in the movie there was that one where he's, he's talking to the guys at the front point fund and he says to him uh nice shirt do they do that for men <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> such a good line and he's got a few other good ones when he's at the gym when they phone him up and do the first trade with him and he goes around and high fives everyone. yeah
1: yeah
0: i just found him endlessly entertaining and he's got some good little side comments as well
1: yeah i like actually the, what he does really well is the bit where he sort of turns to the camera and does the side the side yeah. point yeah yeah the jenga is a great example i think that the way he does that is really clever, actually, in terms of the way the film was made. But yeah, he's just a caricature of everything that's less good about bankers, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so
1: yeah, I struggled to get on with him, but it's very good acting. So yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, so shall we run through our little scoring system that we've each got for, this is for the book, really. So we got four categories, characters, entertainment value, factual accuracy, and unput-down ability. And so we're scoring each of those out of, out of five, did we say, out of 10?
1: Yeah, out of, out of five. five. Yeah.
0: Scoring each of those out of five. Okay, fine. So let's first go through, so characters out of five. Go on then, what you got, Mary?
1: I've gone five out of five, actually, which is fairly unusual for me. But I just think, I mean, partly the descriptions of the characters, I think, are just fantastic, the way that they've been built up. And I think, I guess, the characters themselves, because they're sort of outcasts and they're quite different, it draws you in quite a lot, I think. So
2: yeah, five out of five from me. Nisha? I have to agree with you, Mary. Exactly the same reason. Five out of five for me.
0: Five. Okay, cool. I've gone four on that one. I, I kind of agree with you, but maybe not quite as, um, <laughs> quite as high there. So we've all rated it highly on characters. Entertainment value?
1: Shall I go first on entertainment? So I've given it a four out of five. I do think it was entertaining. I don't usually read all that many books about financial markets. So I think as far as a book about financial markets goes, it's about as entertaining as it can get. But it didn't quite get a five out of five from me.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, I got four for entertainment factor. Probably a similar point to you, Mary. I think I don't really read a lot of financial books and whatnot. So for what it was, it was very entertaining in the way it was depicted. But then, of course, from my perspective, there's a lot of things that I didn't really understand. So it wouldn't be a five for me. Sorry.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I went three on entertainment. I mean, I agree with what you guys have said. And also, I just felt that the the ending Ended on a little bit of a downer. And I know that's always the issue when you're writing a story about something where everyone knows the ending. There's no big reveal. Everyone everyone doesn't know how it yeah. ended. But that was the one thing for me. It sort of built up this real crescendo and then it just sort of, it felt it didn't quite land it on a big ending. So three out of five for me on entertainment. So factual accuracy.
1: I've again gone for four out of five for factual accuracy. Pretty accurate. I think just a couple of things we've already noted, I think, in this discussion about perhaps Showing both sides of the story and showing, for example, the, I think you touched on it, Dan, the fact that it looks like it reads as if it was quite obvious what was going on. And actually, perhaps I think a lot of the criticisms that have, there aren't many, but of this book are actually, was it that obvious when you were living through the times and maybe that aspect of it wasn't picked up quite so well. But I'm actually not sure I'd want a five out of five in a book that's supposed to be for popular reading, because you've got to give a bit of artistic license, right? To make it more readable. Yeah,
2: Yeah, definitely. Sure? I've gone uh, four out of five as well for factual accuracy.
0: Okay. Interesting. I actually went five out of five on that one. Oh, interesting. You're almost talking me out of that one. Mary. But I'm <laughs> going to stick with my initial view. I mean, I felt he didn't really, didn't really dumb stuff down at all. I couldn't say, you know, he did go into the sort of CDOs and CDOs squared and synthetic CDOs. And I felt it was all, all that stuff was all pretty true to life. So I've gone five out of five for factual accuracy. So final category, unput down ability.
1: I'm happy to go first. I gave it a three, which was my lowest score. And I think it goes back a bit to the fact that this it's quite a heavy going book. So it's not one you're going to read on the beach when you're half asleep. (laughs) It was one that if I got into it, I really enjoyed reading it, but you kind of needed to set aside quite a long amount of time. It's not really one that you read as you're about to fall asleep. So for that reason, I slightly struggled.
2: Yeah, I think I partially agree as well with the whole, I put it as four, the unput down ability. I think the author's a really good writer. The way he's just managed to decipher everything and his writing style is really good. So for that reason, he made it very entertaining for me. But I just wish I had a bit more time just to sink into reading the book.
0: Yeah, I went for a two on unput down ability. That was the lowest score on my side Ooh, of I wow. so, sort of agree for the same reasons. It was... I mean, maybe it's a bit unfair. I was reading it for this, probably the third time this time round, So maybe <laughs> be, it's always going to be a bit easier to, to put down. Anyway, I think overall that gives, probably gives a fair reflection of where we are. So we're basically saying that we think it scored really well for characters and factual accuracy, pretty decent on entertainment, maybe a little bit heavy going in places. So that probably seems like a pretty rounded review to me.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of our very first book review episode. Nisha, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) Hopefully you all agree it's been a great success. I'm sure we'll have lots of opportunities for reading more books and reviewing them in the coming weeks of lockdown. Please join us next week. We've got a great session on Groupthink with Zoe Birdo. See you then. Thanks.
2: Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.